Hello and welcome to another Cork and Taylor Wine Podcast. I'm excited to be saying it's being brought to you by Silverado Brand, Silverado, Silvador Brands. I just butchered it. Um, I'm stumbling for words because of the view. It's uh, I've been out here before. It's a pretty remarkable view now that I'm looking at it. But um, yeah, thanks for... Uh, Thanks for listening. Thanks for watching. Luke Taylor here. Cork and Taylor Wine Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on uh, Facebook, Instagram, and wherever you listen to your podcast, and also on YouTube. Give us a thumbs up or wherever the hell they is. Also support us on Patreon, www.patreon.com backslash Cork and Taylor. And we got Silverdale Brand. So as, as an extremely effective and affordable wine preserver, we are excited to partner with Silverado Brands as the official wine preserver. Open whatever you want, whenever you want. 100% Aragon Silverado Wine Preserver allows you to do just that. Go to silverdorbrands.com and click the For Your Home to Order. When checking out, enter Cork and Taylor in the discount code and receive 10% off your entire order. And we'll have the links uh, in the podcast uh, notes and also in uh, YouTube. So I met this fine gentleman. His daughter just called him useless. <laughs> I just want to tell you that. And I was said to her, I said to your 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 lovely daughter I said you know um, is that is that I don't want to assume but is that your your dad she's like oh yeah it's my dad it's my dad I said you know I'm thinking to myself I hope my daughter when she's old enough doesn't call me useless but she meant it in a good way <laughs> very sweet but we have met before numerous couple times we got uh, Jeff Smith from Hourglass Jeff Smith welcome to the Cork and Taylor Wine Podcast Luke thanks for having me yeah thanks for I think thanks for having me <laughs> this is pretty cool so I've been to the winery uh, once before okay. uh, obviously. And I, let's not rehash the whole fire. I mean, and, I mean, we'll probably talk about it, but unfortunately, your your winery is not operational. That's correct. Yeah. So what what gave you this kind of cool idea of an airstream? We're yeah. in an airstream. This is the first time I've ever ever interviewed anybody in an airstream. Well, that's cool. That's cool. Yeah, we um, we just uh, wanted to try something very different, very eclectic. My wife has um, an incredible design sensibility and. Both she and I are a little little off kilter anyway, so uh. are we all? <laughs> this will be a perfect interview. <laughs> so we uh, we thought, you know, that would be kind of cool. Why don't we take um, why don't we take an airstream and and blow it apart and reconceive it um, into an office and uh, and so so we did and and basically what we did was we took an old eighty nine Acela. Um, Airstream, and we we raised the floor up over the wheel carriage, so it has a one flat plane. And then we blew open the sides, and widened it, opened up the ceiling um, by about a foot, and then we put in these beautiful picture windows, um, so you get this incredible view wow. of all of the vineyards surround it. And we just kind of dropped it right in the center of all of the vineyards, and it's uh, it's a great place to come and work. Do you think you'll keep it when all, everything's said and done? Yeah, I, I mean, we'll do something with it. I don't know whether it stays here or if it ends up going back over to my house or, or wherever it'll end up. We've got a couple of years of construction ahead of us. So, you know, I use this sort of as my temporary construction office and, and all that kind of stuff. And and, um, <clears throat> and so when we're done with the construction, I don't know, maybe we move it back up to the winery or we take it over to my house. Or, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm not sure what we'll do. With yeah, it. this is remarkable. How has it been received by... How's it been? Yeah. How's it been received by the, um, by, by, I guess, consumers and hourglass fans? Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's such a cool visual, right? You walk up, it's painted this for, for those who, you know, who haven't seen it, it's painted this pickle green, um, emerald kind of green color. Yeah. And it's just, uh, it's just a really cool vibey experience. Yeah. So 
doing a little research, I try to do as little research as possible because I want to make it as natural as possible. People ask me, well, what are you going to talk about? I'm like, we're going to talk about wine, obviously. Yep. And it's going to go where it's going to go. So you're an arch- architect. You and your wife told them you wanted an anti-Napa winery. <laughs> that is so Napa. <laughs> you know, I grew up here. My family moved here in, in 1963 when I was a year old. And I had this very unusual childhood of growing up around the dinner tables of these incredibly interesting people who filtered into Napa. And it was a combination of, um, you know, dream seekers and, uh, ex hippies and, um, and people fleeing corporate America and, and wanting to, to do something really radically different with their lifestyle. So that's the energy that I grew up with. And then Napa grew up around us and um, and so I've always had that sort of alternative ethos in whatever I've done. Um, you know, I played in an indie rock band through uh, most of my 20s in San Francisco, and, and I was always really into alternative music and alternative art and alternative literature. And, and so, you know, there was this kind of preconception of what a winery should be when we first conceived of the winery. And, and that was really... Um, I think a lot of people were kind of borrowing um, architectures from other wine regions around the world. And we wanted to do something that was really American, really you know, reflective of our vision of Napa Valley, which had this sort of alternative thread to it. And so we went, when we went to Ole Lundberg, first of all, we, we picked modernism as the design platform. And we went, we found uh, Ole. Uh, who was one of the you know, top modernists on the West Coast. And uh, we, f- we found him and, and started talking about the theory of what we wanted to accomplish. And, and I said, you know, I think um, I, I, we landed with modernism because here's Napa Valley at the cutting edge of modern winemaking in the world. We want an architecture that reflects that, and we don't see it here. There were very, very few modern structures when we built the winery in the early 2000s. And... Um, and so that was the platform that we jumped off with. And, and uh, I said, you know, let's do something really different. And Oli was like, great, you came to the right person. Let's build the anti, anti-Napa winery. And so we did. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> Who is Ned Smith? Ned Smith uh, was my father, um, great man, uh, someone I was incredibly close with. Uh, growing up, um, as a personality, he saw Napa before a lot of people saw it. So we were living in the Bay Area in the in the early '60s. He had grown up in Chicago. He had flown B-17s. He was a uh, World War II B-17 squadron commander. He got uh, recommissioned out of the European theater to the Pacific theater. Got as far as San Francisco. Japanese surrendered, and here he is in this really cool city. And he, uh, he decides um, that he's going to stay. And so he stays. He goes to Cal on the GI Bill, meets my mom there, and then gets in the radio and television business. And spent the you know, latter part of the 50s into the 60s you know, living the Mad Men lifestyle and doing that whole kind of thing. And at one point, he just got burned out on the three martini lunch. And he, he, you know, at this point, there's five kids now. I'm the baby of five. 
And he he sits my mom down and he says, "The I, favorite." Yeah, <laughs> I like to think so. I, I'm the young, oh, come on, I'm the I young, mean, I'm the youngest of three, so I know how it works. Just ask my other brothers, yeah, and my sister. whatever. They, they know. They might not admit it. Some will admit yeah, right. it. Some won't. But exactly. You know what happens. Exactly. So, um, so he sat my mom down and he said, "I need something more entrepreneurial. I need to get. I'm, I'm tired of this corporate, you know, lifestyle. I need to do something different. I don't want somebody sitting on my shoulder. I want to be able to." call my own shots and, and do whatever I'm going to do and, and, you know, take the risks and reap the rewards. And, and she said, okay, well, what do you want to do? And she, and he said, I want to move to the town of St. Helena. And she was like, she was like, Montana. What? Yeah. Right. Right. Mount St. Helena. No. Uh, she was completely confused by that. She knew, she knew where it was. Cause we, we owned some property over in Sonoma and we would drive from Arinda to Sonoma and she would, um, uh, you know, so they knew Napa, but it wasn't a place to go in 1963, 64. And, which is uh, so different now. Oh, it's so it's, it's radically different. And, but dad, that was, dad had a, had a vision. He said, listen, he didn't, he didn't see the wine business. What he saw was populations expanding outside of the Bay area. And he said, Napa is the most beautiful place I've ever seen in my life. People will be drawn there. They will be magnetically drawn there in some way, shape or form. And it's just a matter of time. So we need to just kind of drop ourselves in before people move into the mm-hmm. area. Now, it would that migration would be kicked on steroids after the judgment of Paris tasting happened in mm-hmm. 1976. But up until then, Napa was really quiet. It was very sleepy. And, you know, I, I grew up in, a, in the country and I had kids... Uh, in my, I graduated high school in 1982. I had kids in my graduating class who had never been further south than Oakville. <laughs> Think about that. Seven miles away. Sound Oakville. like you grew up in Ohio. <laughs> These oh, kids, did I say that? Like, oh my God. <laughs> like, why would you go to Napa? Like, yeah. what's in Napa? That's yeah. the big city. I'm like, oh my God. But it just kind of framed the agrarian mindset. Like these, right. these families who are here were, were very, um, uh, rooted to a, a very immediate geography and a very, very limited worldview. Mm-hmm. And then of course, all of that blew up after the judgment of Paris tasting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. It was a fascinating time to have grown up here. Oh, I and, can't even imagine. And all of the interesting characters who, who were drawn here and came here oh, and, God. and built what is Napa today. The Napa that we know today was, they, they set the foundation for that. So I got to, I got a chance to sit around the dinner tables with a lot of these people and learn from them. Yeah. Be inspired by them. What is hourglass? What is hourglass? Mm-hmm. Hmm. That's a really good question. <clears throat> it has evolved over time. So it started as one thing and now is something uh, different, but the thread still runs through it. So, you know, if I was going to do my uh, my little pitch to Kai Rizdahl on... Uh, uh, you know, I said distill your business into five or seven words or some, something like that. Very, very difficult thing to do, right? But, but I've always thought of Hourglass as, you know, the simple explanation is that, that we, you know, we make estate-driven wines of personality from Napa, uh, Napa Valley exclusively. Um, we're very modern in our approach to winemaking and, and how we present the brand and so forth. Um, and that sort of core ethos sort of runs through everything the, it's really hourglass is really about these two estate vineyards one the original hourglass in st helena and the blue line estate 
which is where the winery is in Calistoga. And those two vineyards um, are marquee vineyards in Napa. They're, they're very special pieces of dirt, and they're very different. And the differences of terroir, the differences of the two sites and their soil profiles and their orientations and, and um, the flora and fauna around them, all of the characteristics of, of terroir and, and the immediate environment find their way into the wines. And so we do have a house style, but the sites themselves have a strong definitive personality that runs through them to the extent that we've even you know changed winemakers. So our original winemaker, Bob Foley, had slightly different approaches than, than our current winemaker, um, Tony Biaggi, um, and yet the personality... Who's of, a better rocker? <laughs> Bob, Bob can actually play, but I would, I would suggest that Tony is pretty good with air guitar also. <laughs> Tony gets loud in his own way. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> so, the, so we've had Robert Foley on the podcast. Excellent. Uh, what is 1981 Yonville Saloon? Uh, 1981 Yonville Saloon. Uh, that was the first time I met Bob Foley. Mm-hmm. And at a bar. Yeah, at a bar, and I was not 21. Uh, was he? I was, uh, you think he was, yeah. So you're saying he's older than you. He is just a touch. Yeah. But, uh, um, yeah, he was playing in this band called The Primates. It was a three-piece, very progressive um, band that was kind of part... Uh, there were jazz elements in it. There was look a little Devo-esque. From a- Devo, new, new... Akron, Ohio. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, great. He makes Akron wine, now. you know that? I did not. Yeah, I don't know if really? it's any good, but makes wine. Oh, I got to it out. Makes Pinot Noir. In, in, in Ohio? No, God, no. I, I've actually heard that Ohio has has great pot- potential for, for terroir-driven wines. I mean, they're going to be better than Missouri. <laughs> <laughs> I once had a winemaker, though, go nameless. He was saying uh, he was at this wine fair, you know, years ago. You guys yeah. used to all do these wine fairs. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Get the name out. Now it's like no one does them. You know, well, I shouldn't say that. A little bit different. So he said, you know, he said, he goes, Luke, if you ever go to a wine taster or a wine fair, never stop at the Missouri table. <laughs> <laughs> What's that oh, supposed man. to mean? <laughs> oh, those poor folks from Missouri, they're, they're probably, they're, they're pissed right now. <laughs> <laughs> well, whatever. We've got a couple <laughs> listeners in Missouri. I, I love misery. <laughs> so he was your original winemaker. So you've only had two winemakers. I've only had two winemakers, yeah. Why the change, if I can ask? You know, uh, there were a lot of things that influenced that change. And um, the... Asking for, 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 asking for a friend. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, no, I'm joking. <laughs> um, I, it's a great question because it happens frequently in that. It does. Valley. It's surprisingly more than you think. And and we've had, you know, we just concluded our 25th harvest in, in last year. And we've had two winemakers in that 25 years, which mm-hmm. I think is reasonably rare in Napa Valley. I think there's a, there's a bit of a turnstile for um, the flavor of the month kind of winemaking. And we have never had that. I've always wanted to have a long-term strategy relative to winemaking, but... That strategy changed a bit mm-hmm. um, in the, so it was probably 2010, 11. We switched to Tony in 2012. Um, but Bob had been, you know, listen, Bob's world blew up. He had a lot of important mm-hmm. clients and a lot of demands on his Next time. Door neighbor. And yeah, yeah, Switchback Ridge. Yep. Uh, 
you know, amongst his own, own brand, yep. his own brand yep. Had, yep. had blown up and, and, uh, he's, he still had, he had other consulting clients and so forth. And Bob was getting just drawn in a lot of different directions. And mm-hmm. it was really, I think it was really hard on him, um, to be pulled in that many directions and, and to make wine at the level that you have to make it that, that we were aspiring for. It's a collection of a lot of little decisions, yeah. all that mound up to something, right? Any one of those decisions you think, oh, that might be inconsequential, but when you stack them all together, they matter. Right. And so, you know, when you're stretched in a lot of different directions that way, it's just really, really hard to be able to micromanage. It's not like you're saying, hey, Bobby, you're a shitty winemaker and we hate you. No. It's just your your focus as a business is is different than maybe you know his at the time because he's pulled in so many directions yeah and and bob, listen bob is um will always be in my mind one of the most important winemakers of napa valley he mm-hmm. was in that transcendent group that broke from tradition charbono in the, in the 90s yeah, yeah. charbono, charbono. Was certainly one of charbono. His, his breaking moments but <laughs> but i think more importantly um his orientation to modernism and i don't i don't think that this was a a thing that was strategically or philosophically thought mm-hmm. through at the time this was just a, a function of just naturally happened yeah, yeah. He, he and a in a probably another dozen winemakers started exploring with the idea that you could hang fruit longer in Napa than you could in other regions. We probably have another 30 to 40 days of growing season than Bordeaux does, for mm-hmm. example. And so what would happen if you broke with tradition and instead of picking your your grapes at 22 degrees bricks, which is the measure of sugar in the bricks right, or the right. degrees measure of sugar right. in it. And, and back in the day when I was younger, um, you were picking at 22, 23 because that's what they did in Bordeaux. Acidity. Well, no, that's the degrees of... No, I'm uh, saying the picky, they want, you know, they, they're looking at acidity more than yeah, sugars, they, right? But they, but they were struggling to gain more ripeness. They were struggling mm-hmm. to gain more sugar, and so they, they picked at whatever they could, they could pick at. Well, if you've got another 30 or 40 days to work with, what would happen if you experimented, and instead of picking around, let's say, 100 days from fruit set to, to ripeness, what if you picked at 100 and five or 110 or something mm-hmm. like that. Well, well, so what ended up happening was the grape chemistry changed. And all of these guys that were doing this in the early days, they were all instructed not to do it either by the traditionalists like, um, uh, you know, Andre Chelichev or, mm-hmm. or Walter Shug or, or um, uh, Mike Gergich. <clears throat> these are all classically trained yep. European guys who came over and brought their ideas and, and best practices with them. So their, their, their mindset is in, in old, old school. And then the first crop of, of winemakers that Bob was on the front edge of that came out of Davis in the 70s and early 80s, they were taught by Davis at the time to make shelf-stable wines. So pH and acidity became a really important element of that. And so they were schooled to make higher acid wines because if you let the ph rise bad things happen and microbial activity is encouraged Mm -hmm. in higher ph solutions so the whole world is telling them not to make wines in let's say a 3.8 you know ph range they're making wines more in a 3.6 range well the difference in grape physiology if you hold your grapes on vine for another 5 10 15 20 30 days is massive 
and things change. So your relative sugars change, your relative acidity changes, but more importantly, all of these complex polyphenols uh, will change. And um, so this is the beginning stages of modernism in Napa, and it's a break from tradition. It, and you had to have some serious balls to mm-hmm. do that. And Bob was one of the first guys that said, okay, well, I'm going to traditionally, you know, fruit set, we'd, or after fruit set, we'd pick about 100 days from, from, uh, uh, from fruit set into and, and harvest. Nah, I'm going to try about 105 and see what happens. Oh, hey, I like that. That's pretty mm-hmm. cool. That's interesting. Things change. Texture changes. Aromones change. Fruit profiles change. Fruit starts to darken up, maybe a little more black fruit than red fruit. And so then you go through this progression of, okay, let's check out and see what happens if a little more ripeness is good. Ooh. Yeah, that's interesting. Kind of like that. And so Bob was a game changer in that way, and he mm-hmm. broke the mold. And a handful of other uh, winemakers were in that same that same um, milieu, and they changed winemaking forever, not just in Napa, but around the world. Mm-hmm. And they showed people what was possible. And so the modern wines that we're all accustomed to drinking today are wines that came out of that philosophical shift. And Bob was one of the leaders. Hourglass got to ride his coattails as he was going through that whole experimentation. And then the world started to catch up behind him. And then, you know, listen, if a little is good, try a little bit more. Yeah, push the envelope a little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more. Yeah, Yeah. and then one day you wake up and you go, hmm. Maybe a little bit too much. (laughs) Maybe maybe we stepped over over a little bit. Maybe we need to throttle that back. It's like a child with a parent, right? Exactly. Push the envelope as long as they can until they get caught. Right, right. Deal with it every day. So, you know, by, by 2010... You know, we were starting to hear from the Psalm community that Napa wines were overextracted and high alcohol and, you know, sort of monochromatic. And I could see that in some of our wines. And I wanted to address that. And, and in order to address it required an incredible amount of attention to detail yep. at a level that Bob just didn't have the bandwidth nope. for. Or the, yep, the time that, yep, yep. And yep. so, and so we brought Tony in mm-hmm. and Tony has done an amazing job of, being true to a lot of the initial um, learnings and and philosophy that Bob established as the as the foundation of Hourglass, mm-hmm. and then taking those and refining them to the next level, and that's been that's a hard thing to do. Mm-hmm. But he's done an, enor- an incredible job of being able to take the program and and really see it hit its its heights. Wow. Wow. Like, yeah. I mean, I've had your wines before and they're delicious. Thank you. And they keep looking at me. <laughs> We're, uh, we can, we can jump in at any time. Yeah. Why don't you pour something while I ask you the, yeah. the next, uh, next do question. You wanna, do you want to stay with red? Do you want to, do you want to go a little white? What do you want to do? It's your world. I, I'm, I'm good any way you want to do it. Uh, let's just wake your palate up with yeah, a little sodium block. How about that? I've had this before. It's delicious. Excellent. Perfect. Thank you. Cheers. Cheers. Everybody thinks in the wine industry, all we do is drink. Well, there's some truth in it. <laughs> it's an occupational hazard, right? <laughs> we're testing. We're testing. <laughs> exactly. I spit oh. sometimes. I've, I've, I remember this nose. Yeah. I, I, Tony um, is a master at, at making Sauvignon Blanc. Um, we will pick, you know, probably, let's see, maybe we, I think we have probably four sites that we will pick from and we'll pick numerous 
different passes and do a variety of different fermentation mm. techniques, stainless yep. steel, neutral wood, new wood. And by the end of the day, he probably makes 20 different Sauvignon Blancs and then blends them back together to create this wine that has a great modern, fresh fruit profile. Um, but it also has some nervy energy. It's got, it's got like some, some little waxiness to yeah, it. Yeah, it's nice. Yeah, and it's and it's got some acid and mm-hmm. it's got some minerality and it's just a great sort of tensional balance between the richness of the fruit and the and the energy of the acid and the minerality. You know what's funny? So this this winery or sorry, the Hourglass Winery was first planted with Zinfandel. Mm-hmm. You ripped it out. Why'd That's you do true. that in 1992? I'm just um. joking. <laughs> people don't realize. Because Zinfandel doesn't pay the bills. <laughs> well, no, but people don't realize. There's some people that don't realize. California, they're not known for Cap. Originally, they're known for Zinfandel. Yeah. That, that, it was planted as Zinfandel by my dad um, because that was his favorite wine to drink. He loved Zin. And, you know, back in the 60s and 70s, Zin was red Zinfandel, not, not white Zinfandel. Um, Your dad didn't like white Zinfandel. No, he 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 didn't. Does he, anybody like white Zinfandel? You know, I, there's got to they, they sell millions of cases of it, or at least they used Behringer to. Behringer doesn't even make it anymore. They don't even make no, it anymore. Oh my god, we've had Ryan wreck, we've had Ryan wreck the winemaker on. They said, so you make the white Zinfandel? He's like, no, no, no. We, we and it was actually not. Out. It was actually palatable. I remember trying it years ago. It actually, I mean, I'm not going to drink it. I'm not going to buy it. I remember trying a little bit. It was not as bad as I thought it was going to be. It plays. It, or it played an enormously important Huge. role. Um, you know, you think about the American palate, how much it's grown up in the last, you know, in my lifetime, in the last 50 years plus. Um, you know, prior to the the 80s, we didn't have much of a food culture and much of a wine culture mm-hmm. in this country. And then it's just exploded since mm-hmm. then. Um, and... You know, we were drinking at the time. We were drinking soda pop and beer and yep. and spirits and country time lemonade, yeah, fruit right. punch. Yep. Yeah, we had, yep. and we had very sweet sweet palate. So, um, I think White Zinfandel was that gateway f- that pulled people across from drinking beer and soda and so forth, and mm-hmm. introduced them to wine as a mass beverage. And then from there, they got into Chardonnay, and from there, they got into Merlot, and from there, they got into Cabernet. And so yep. it's been. All of these, all of these stair steps are all, I think, really important. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. All right. Well, you pour something else. We're going to do a little thing called sip and spit. You win nothing, you get something. It's kind of like a power round, quick round. It's kind of fun. It's uh, lively, and I'll ask you some questions. I'll make you think. Uh, I've stumped <laughs> a, a, quite a few wine people with you, some of these questions. <laughs> all right. Favorite varietal, least favorite varietal. Um. I'm going to say favorite varietal right now because it changes all the time. I'm going Grenache. Least favorite varietal? I don't know. I have one. Um, yeah, everybody has one. Yeah, everybody has one. Deep down, you have one. Uh, what do I not really like drinking? Um, uh, hmm. That's you. You got me. I don't know. I'll come back to it. Okay. If you didn't name Hourglass, what would you have named it? <laughs> uh, who effing knows? I did have the opportunity to sell the name. F-U-C-K. Was yeah. Remember that one? Yeah. There you go. I'll go with that. No. <laughs> That's already taken. Good luck trying to get that one. <laughs> what varietal would Caroline say best describes you and why? 
and that's your wife. I just yeah, you've said her name, but it's your wife. Uh, she'd say Cabernet because it it pays the bills. Okie dokie. Uh, your favorite wine you guys make? Favorite wine that if we make. If you only could pick yeah. one wine to make, my what pa- would be? My passion wine of the portfolio is Cab Franc. Okay. Okay. Yeah, I love Cab Franc. Okay. Most memorable vintage? Of, our, say, of Hourglass? Yeah, don't say 2020. Yeah, you know, of Hourglass, 1998. Hands down. Why? Um, it, was a, it was our second vintage. It was a vintage that was um, absolutely panned by the press. Um, and that wine to this day remains to be one of the most ultimate, uh, expressions of the hourglass estate we've ever made. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it's, uh, what pushing 26 years old now, or no, 24 years old, something like that. Um, and we only made 48 cases of it. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> That's it. I still have a few, I still have a few bottles. That's it less is, than 600 bottles. It is an amazing, amazing bottle of wine. And it's, and it's, so right now, when, if you were lucky enough to have it, it would give you, um, all of the, all of the amazing tertiary characteristics that age provides, um, that saddle leather cigar box, kind of all of that really cool, almost Bordeaux like aromatics, but it has California fruit and it's fresh and it's vibrant and it's balanced and it's going to last forever. It's still kicking. It's still kicking. Yeah. That's crazy. That's absolutely crazy. This is something that a lot of people poo-poo Napa about is, is, is ageability. Seven, eight years, they say. Yeah, well, that's absurd. I mean, I've got, I've got a deep cellar going back into the 50s. And, uh, I mean, those wines are still, inc- if they've been well stored, mm-hmm. um, they're mind-blowing. And you'd put them next to the, their Bordeaux counterpoints. Yeah. So it's funny you say that. So Michael Keenan and Chris Corley, I sell their wines yeah. in Ohio and we've had them on the podcast and stuff and they've been doing it for a long time. Yep. You know, 40, 50 years. They're, they're, you know, dads, um, um Jay Corley, uh, Chris's dad's a lot like your dad just yeah. came up here from Chicago too. Yeah, right. Yeah. Um, and Michael, sure. and Michael Keenan's dad too, you know, came up to Spring Mountain and what have you. And they'll post stuff and we'll, I'll talk to him and, you know, Michael's drinking like a 1982 Spring Mountain Shardy made. You know, and it's like, like what? drinking beautifully. I'm like, 82 like Chardonnay? What? Are you kidding? Can't age Chardonnay. Yeah, you can. Well, you can, obviously. You can age a lot of things. <laughs> but there are but, a lot of, the preconception is you can't. Right? But but why does California kind of get a bad rap? Everybody talks about Bordeaux. And it's funny, I just had um, Fabian uh, Tiagen, who is the winemaker at uh, Chateau Hot Smith, Smith Lef- sorry, mm-hmm. Chateau Smith Hot Lafitte mm-hmm. in, uh, in Bordeaux. And he said, eight years. For his wines, he says eight years is where it's uh, perfect. Now they can age, but why is the thing is the only wines that can age are Bordeaux wines? What about Napa? Well, they they can. I just think that people don't have much experience with them. Right. Yeah, and that's changing though because you can see now in the auction market, um, older Napa wines are now starting to become very expensive, mm-hmm. and they were just forgotten for years. And uh, but people are starting to taste these wines and go, oh my god. And and what's interesting to me about older Napa wines versus older Bordeaux is the freshness, mm-hmm. um, the 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 beauty of that California fresh fruit is still there, and it's there. Very few of these wines are dried out and um, have that sort of confected uh, brown sugar esque you know reduction that mm-hmm. you would that you get in a lot of Bordeaux. 
wines are, are aromatically bright and and fresh on the palate, and the, the fruit is still is still vibrant. Mm-hmm. That was a long answer, but it's okay. <laughs> oh yeah, I forgot. This is the no, lightning fine. round. No, it's, it's <laughs> Sometimes we go on tangents. I just tell you. <laughs> Sorry about that. Who would be the Beatles of winery musicians? Give me four winery musicians who'd make up the Beatles. Four winery musicians who make up the Beatles. Okay. Um, Mike Herbie on guitar. No, who's that? He's the winemaker of Relic. Okay. Um, uh, bass player. I need a bass player. I would go... Um, uh, oh, God, I'm blanking right now. Um, the national sales manager for Schramsberg... Um, or worldwide sales manager for Schramsberg. Um, oh God, I'm, I'm blanking. It'll come to me. Not Michael. No. Um, it'll come to me in a second. Okay. Um, drummer. Hmm. That's tough. Might have to bring in a session guy. Really? <laughs> <laughs> Anybody that uh, listens is in the winery world in Napa. Pick, learn the drums. You might have a career. Foley's, Foley's another great guitar player. You could throw him in the mix. Mm-hmm. Um, what about vocals? Uh, vocals. Uh, I hear Jay James is a really good singer, and mm-hmm. I haven't I haven't actually um, worked with him. We we've talked about getting together, and then COVID got in the way yeah, a few years ago. Yeah, five little words. And then we had that little thing called a glass fire, and I've been yeah. a little busy the last two. Life's years. been good for you. Yeah, it's been it's living been, the dream. It's been tricky, tricky two years, but <laughs> we're getting there. Can't get worse. <clears throat> yeah, exactly. The song that best describes you. Oh God! I should have asked these your are, daughter this before. Oh my God, <laughs> these are terrible questions. I hate these. No one's ever said that before. Thank you. Making you think. Uh, the song that best describes me. Well, give me shelter. How about that? Okay, that's the last two three years. What about previously to that? <laughs> uh, Dance yourself clean by uh, LCD Sound System. How about that? Okay. Yeah. Okay. So you win nothing, you get nothing. You might hate me more. You might wonder what the hell you're doing in life. But uh, thanks for uh, participating in the uh, Sip and Spit brought to you by nobody. Um, what does the future hold? For Hourglass, for Napa, for wine in general. You tell me. Mm. Well. Um, in 20 seconds or less. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah. <laughs> uh, our, for Hourglass, um, you know, we just, we have this, we've probably got another couple of years of recovery from the glass fire we've got to rebuild the winery rebuild the hospitality facilities um fortunately the vineyards were unscathed so we're still making wine um which is great um we've got some new interesting um experimental wines that we uh, are going to launch maybe at the end of this year uh so some new things from us coming down the pipeline a new brand potentially i'll tease with that and leave it at that um and uh maybe that's where this is going to yeah yeah <laughs> maybe where's it located at <laughs> is there much new projects happening in napa um there are but the but there's been the wave has slowed down significantly mm-hmm. and you know napa is a very small place we're what one eighth the size of bordeaux Isn't that crazy um, yeah i know it's it's we're really teeny um, yeah but wineries are selling like pew. Yeah, there's 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 some transactional uh, activity 
you know, there's, it's, that's a generational thing. So generation one is, you know, starting to get older and pass mm-hmm. on and, and generation two is now stepping forward. And some people just don't want to be in the wine business or, or their estate planning isn't together or whatever. Right. So you're seeing, you know, that first generation of wine wineries starting to transact a bit, uh, which is interesting. Then you get some new fresh blood. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Jeff, thank you so much. Yeah, you bet. I appreciate been, it. We're, you're going to stick with us. We're gonna, you're going to stick with us for a couple more minutes. But uh, awesome. Thanks for listening. Thanks for watching. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. Uh, only five star reviews. If you're going to give us four or three, I'd appreciate not. You'll get a horrible Christmas present from Santa. It might consume coal, no wine. But uh, we'll be back next week on the uh, Cork and Taylor Wine Podcast, and uh, keep drinking the good stuff.